Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, if you were following along when the Charbonneau Commission was taking place in Quebec, you will remember that it was a commission that investigated corruption in Quebec's construction industry. The report was tabled uh, in 2015. It included 60 recommendations, uh, things such as protection for whistleblowers and uh, political donation rules, uh, some changes made to those, uh, stiffer penalties for companies as well as people who break uh, the law. And that is being looked at by some as an example of an inquiry that led to changes that brought information to the forefront, uh, information that likely would not have been discovered without it. Uh, Some saying that we can look to that commission as an example or an an example of how commissions work and why we need one in this province on money laundering, which we are getting, the government announcing just a few days ago. Well, Simon Tremblay served as the assistant deputy chief in the Quebec Charbonneau Commission and joins me now on the line. Simon, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, Do you think it is a good move or that we will learn what we want to learn in uh, holding an inquiry on money laundering in BC? Yeah, I think if we're considering all the allegations and the the, the report that just got issued, I I don't think the the government has no other option but uh, to launch a commission of inquiry because just criminal prosecution or civil suits won't be enough and won't satisfy the population because they want to know what happened clearly. So I think that's the best tool uh, the government could put in place to uh, to clarify all these allegations. Uh, how does a how does an inquiry do you think then do a better job of getting that information, say, as compared to a criminal investigation? <clears throat> But the thing with the criminal investigation, I mean, you just have to fulfill your burden. And if you do, by the people will be guilty. But uh, that's your goal. Here, the Commission of Inquiry, it's to, the main goal is to understand what happened. So, I mean, especially when we talk about organized crime, I mean, if we, you, you arrest the head of the, of the gang and you put him in jail, what do you think is going to happen? Someone's going to take his place uh, right after, the day after, and the things won't change. The Commission of Inquiry will allow your province to, hopefully, if it's successful, to understand what happened, what was done exactly, so they can make proper uh, recommendations for the government. The government. So they put, they put in place uh, organization, mechanism, uh, regulations to make sure, not to make sure it won't happen again, because I don't think <laughs> we're able to make to be 100% sure it won't happen again, but at least it's going to be a lot more, uh, much more, much more harder to do it and to uh, money laundering, for example. So, so that's the big difference. And same thing also for the civil suit. I mean, you're just getting the money back. Uh, you're not necessarily trying to understand the whole picture and to do recommendations after for the government. Uh, the Charbonneau Commission, uh, almost 300 witnesses, uh, 261 days of testimony. Uh, looking back at it now or, or where we stand today, uh, do, do you think it led to positive change? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think it's one of the best moves that the government made like a, in decades because, yes, you'll, you'll see, and I think you'll hear, you'll hear some kind of, same kind of critique, but yeah, it, it was costly in a way, like 40, 45 million, but just the money we saved, uh, for example, we already got back uh, 150 million, roughly, from the company. And also, uh, for example, in Montreal, the, the cost of construction contracts were increased, uh, like say for sidewalk, up to 30%. So when you think that in Quebec we're awarding like roughly 15 to 20 billion of public contract construction public contract per year, so, I mean, so we're talking about huge savings. 
So for me, it's a, it's a very good investment. And, and I'm only talking here about the money part. Uh, so we have, a, a, for me, like a better governance rule, cleaner society, uh, better public bodies. So it, there's tons of tons of advantages. And regarding the allegations that we hear in BC, I, I think it's going to be the same when you look at it uh, in 10 years from now. Were there challenges or is there anything that sticks out in your mind that wasn't possible to get into or that you couldn't find that the, the commission wasn't able to uh, uncover or really investigate? No, not really. Obviously, the mandate was very, very wide. So, uh, but at some point, we had to, to, to finish because it lasted the whole four years, two years, two years of hearing. So it's starting to be a lot at some point. So it's, maybe it will be one of the, the counsel I would give to uh, Commissioner Colin. I mean, just to make good planning because it's a commission of inquiry. So let's say that I have a scheme in, one, in five cities. I don't have to show the scheme in the five cities. I just have to show the scheme once. So I can make, I can make eventually recommendation that will apply to every every situation in, in the, uh, every cases in that situation. So that's why. So it's it's quite easy, and your the mandate of Mr. Cullen is quite wide too. So it, yeah, I would say they have to be careful to focus and to do some good planning because uh, uh, if he tries to to turn every every stone regarding his mandate, uh, it might be very very long. Uh, and I think that's perhaps what some are concerned about, because there are so many different roads that, that you can go down when looking at money laundering, whether it's uh, real estate, it's the illicit drug market, uh, ties to other countries. There are so many different uh, roads to go down. Uh, I guess that's one of the concerns is while you want to uncover everything, there's also the, the possibility of just getting so lost in all of the details. Yeah, as I was saying, effectively, right. So that, that's why you need to be surrounded with good people, integrity, and a good team, because he, starting now, he's alone. <laughs> so he's going to have to build a team, and it's everything. He has to find a premises. Uh, he has to, uh, you know, he needs a tech guy, lawyers, investigators, and everything. And also, which could help a lot if he could get someone from the inside, because us, it really started when uh, one of the an Italian constructor like went to test, uh, came to testify and explain them the whole picture because he was having contract in different cities at the provincial level, municipal level. So he was able to give us like a big picture of everything. And from that, it, it did like, a, as we say in French, like a, the snowball effect. So it, it just like we, we add like more and more people. So this will be very important. And adding someone from inside can help him also to, 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 to uh, plan uh, his investigation to make sure that he's not going like uh, everywhere because uh, it's, a, it's a wide mandate, I have to admit. It's a wide mandate, but it's a very interesting mandate. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you think that will play out, though? Because I think that's another concern in that, granted, there's going to be a commission. People will be compelled if they are, are subpoenaed. They're, they're, they're called to testify in front of this money laundering commission. But you still need to know who to call. You still need to know who it is. Like you said, in that, in that case, an insider gets the ball rolling and, and now you have all of this information. But if you don't know who to call or who, who that insider is, how do you get to that point where you're getting that information? information uh, that's why uh, we have to hire investigators we had like uh, 20 to 25 i can't recall exactly but the uh, police investigator uh, that were lent from uh, police uh, corps so i mean and they were pretty good and also and i'm pretty sure like the the police had, had investigated a little bit too so i'm pretty sure they can find uh, they might have clue to start with but uh, yes i have to admit with you i mean there as i said mr colin now is alone <laughs> he's alone and he has a mandate and he has a budget and he's starting from scratch 
So uh, he needs to be surrounded with, as I said, pretty good uh, people with strong integrity. And he, he's going to need investigator, uh, maybe not police investigator, but people that know how to investigate uh, and know how to uh, ask questions to witnesses. So that's why. So we had, as I said, uh, experienced policeman investigator uh, to help us because the, the, the thing they're going to investigate is, is things that police know. So it's very important, I think, as I said, to be surrounded because he, he, one thing is sure, he cannot do that all alone. So he needs to hire people and a lot of people. Right. And the irony there is it was revealed a few weeks ago in VC that there are no police officers investigating money laundering in this province, even though it's clear that it's happening. I guess the irony there is that now that a commission has been called, there will actually be police investigating. <laughs> Yeah, maybe uh, I'm not fully aware of uh, what the police have uh, in, in their book, but uh, yeah, but at some point, I mean, you have to, you have to start investigate. And uh, I know at the end of the mandate, they they have to make sure that they don't uh, interfere with police investigation. But <clears throat> we, uh, in the Chamonix Commission, one a good example is in Laval, which is the main suburb up north Montreal. So we were working hand by hand with the police. They were doing their criminal investigation. We were doing our uh, administrative investigation if you want and we so we work and end by hand and it end up with a huge criminal trial with 37 people accused and we were able at the commission to have the full picture of what happened and on top of it we already uh, recovered 50 million dollars so uh, it's possible to work on the, at the three uh, in the three fields of criminal Commissioner inquiry and even even uh, civil suits, it's possible. But I mean, you have to work hand by hand, and it doesn't have to be uh, competitive. It's not the first who's going to get uh, uh, the head of the gang, for example. It's all in the public interest. So we have to put ego on the side and make sure that we all work on the same way to to uh, get uh, success at the three levels, as I said. And and finally, just one more question. How do you keep it from going off the rails? Because I think that's one of the concerns of BC residents is that it is a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of resources. Uh, We've seen other inquiries, uh, missing and murdered women um, in in BC, the Picton Inquiry, um, where people are concerned, I think, that it just uh, balloons and there's a possibility that it could go off the rails. How do you stop that? I... (laughs) It's still a possibility because uh, it might, they might find nothing. It doesn't mean that there's nothing, but uh, that's why it's going to be very important for Mr. Cullen, like as I said, to, to hire the proper people to plan accordingly because uh, uh, I think he's condemned to, to find something. He's going to have a lot of pressure, but uh, uh, I think it's possible because, I mean, I know it's everything is made under like the uh, behind closed door, but there's some people that don't like that and will want to speak. You just have to make sure <laughs> to find them. It's easy to say like that, but I mean, uh, it's going to be a quest. And as per the money, I mean, yes, it's money, but uh, like say, as I said, Savano Commission cost like 40, 45 million over four years. So, uh, and it was extremely long. It was the longest uh, commission, one of the longest commission of inquiry. So I don't think here two years, maybe we can expect like a 20, 25 million cost. Uh, I think regarding the the allegations that we hear and the billions that were uh, laundered, uh, I think it's a very good investment. And at least, even if it doesn't find like much or it finds nothing, I mean, the bandits will be like on their, uh, uh, will be aware and they'll, they'll hide more and they'll be more careful and maybe they'll do less. So there will be consequence, even just by the presence. I, I, I was always saying like, uh, uh, well, the Commission of Inquiry is like the light. It's, so we open the light and the cockroach, they go hide. So, I mean, just the presence of the Commission of Inquiry, for me, 
worth the 20, 25 millions it's going to cost. But I'm pretty sure he's going to find something and it's going to work much more than just uh, being there. All right. Uh, I hope so, for sure. Simon Tremblay, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. You too. Well, you might have heard uh, a report out uh, from BC Hydro, and it took a look at driving an electric vehicle, comparing it to, to driving a gas vehicle. And not surprising, it found that the electric vehicle was a lot more cost effective. In fact, BC Hydro said that consumers could save thousands of dollars every year if they switched from a gas vehicle or a diesel vehicle to one powered by electricity. So let's talk a little bit more about this with Matthew Klippenstein, an electric Electric Vehicle Advisor with Plug-In BC. And Plug-In BC is a nonprofit initiative that oversees electric vehicle infrastructure rebates on behalf of the province. And Matthew Klippenstein has been tracking the vehicle, the electric vehicle market here in BC for the past few years and joins us on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, so it's not as though everyone's going to run out and purchase an electric vehicle, but are we seeing more people uh, embrace this? Uh, we definitely have. Um, we might say that May 1st was an uh, electric vehicle buyer Christmas in that that was the day that the federal government incentives applied, which layered in as well as the uh, provincial incentives, which, which are in place. Uh, right now, there are uh, probably about 21,000, maybe 21,500 uh, electric vehicles in B.C. And uh, so perhaps uh, at the end of the year or perhaps start of next year, we might be able to get to the point where 1% of all the uh, light-duty vehicles, all passenger vehicles, are, are electric in BC. So right now, if you were going to walk into a dealer and purchase one of these vehicles, what are the incentives? What do you get? Sure. So the incentives are a little bit uh, complicated because this being Canada, nothing is ever coordinated between levels of government. <laughs> but uh, if, the, uh, if the base model of your vehicle, of the, of the electric vehicle, costs less than $45,000, then you can get up to $5,000 from the federal government and up to $5,000 from the provincial government as a purchase incentive, purchase rebate. And there may be still a few um, scrap-it uh, incentives, which are kind of a, a cash-for-clunkers uh, uh, incentive program, where if you have older uh, combustion vehicles, you can get an incentive of up to $6,000 uh, in addition to the other incentives to, uh, to, to switch to an electric vehicle. So you could get, it would be possible to get $16,000 off the, the price of the vehicle? In theory, uh, there aren't many of the scrap it rebates left. Um, and of course, uh, if your used vehicle is worth more than $6,000, then there's, there's no real reason to use that program. But uh, that is possible. It'd be a bit like threading the needle at this point, but um, in theory, yes. But so technically, and again, everything would have to align then. So technically, for a $45,000 electric vehicle, you would be able to get it for 29000 uh, y- yes, I guess it'd have to be 44999 or less, but right. yes. And, and do you know, are people, and again, I guess the Scrap It program coming into place, but so if you take Scrap It out of it, the $5,000 mm-hmm. federal and 5000 provincial, is that a, a pretty straightforward one? If you walk into a dealer to buy it, you, you get that rebate? That's right. Uh, as far as I understand, uh, they're, they're both point of purchase rebates so that the dealer will later get reimbursed from the province and from the federal government. So uh, it, is, uh, uh, it, is, it is quite straightforward, yes. Uh, so BC Hydro is saying, and they came out with the study uh, showing that it is a lot more cost effective if you can work, if an electric vehicle works for you, uh, but still saying it's the upfront cost that is, is really is what the big obstacle is for people. Would you agree with that? Yes, there is an element of sticker shock. Now, um, 
So when, when, when we buy cars, at least when I buy a car, uh, one of the considerations is, you know, how much does it cost so I can figure out my monthly payment, that sort of a thing. And the fact that you spend much less money from month to month for your fuel, for electricity instead of gasoline, is, is kind of a different you know, part of the brain almost. And so uh, making that upfront um, hurdle lower uh, for people to buy electric cars uh, has been shown to increase electric vehicle sales in BC in the past uh, and in other jurisdictions around the world. So yes, it, it does help get more people at least considering electric vehicles because suddenly the, the sticker shock element is not as terrible. And as far as charging stations go, and I know Hydro says it is expanding the charging network, and that who pays for that if you're if you're driving around and you're plugging into the various stations to put to uh, recharge your vehicle? Absolutely, yeah, great question. So uh, most charging that people will do will be done at home because um, most people will either have access to electricity in their garage or perhaps install a charging station working with their condo or their apartment. That's part of the, the work that I do. And um, But still, you might need uh, to top up over the course of a day or over the course of a road trip. Uh, you would pay for your electricity in general, um, perhaps uh, to help pay for the costs of installing these things. Uh, the most likely exception in the long term would be for malls or shopping centers where they would uh, offer the charging as a kind of a, a lure, a, a freebie to get you in the door so you, you, uh, you patronize their, um, their facilities. And I would imagine our cities and municipalities are, are installing these as well, aren't they? That's right. So City of Vancouver has already, be, for, for their publicly owned, you know, city-owned charging stations, they do require a fee to, uh, to recharge, which is fair. They want to get their, uh, their cost recovery back. And yes, cities have begun uh, deploying charging stations. One of the key, another impediment to people apart from price is the concern that if I really need to desperately charge up, will I be able to? And so there are efforts uh, in the lower mainland, as well as in other cities around the province around the country around the world uh, to get more public chargers available again so that people have less fear about uh, about switching to an electric vehicle uh, because i would imagine that would be a, a very uh, big concern say you're a commuter between chilliwack and vancouver your concern is it's a long drive and what happens if you run out of juice exactly and so um i guess uh, on the electric vehicle enthusiast side, we want to make sure that there are solutions that fit for everyone, right? Just what works for me might not work for every listener. Uh, and so um, the ability to have a charging stations at your workplace or on, on, the, on highways at various points, so you can top up if you need, top up if you need to, uh, very important. And do you see it then? I mean, one of the concerns is if, if everybody now uh, junks their, their gas-fueled gas vehicle and goes this route, uh, suddenly the footprint becomes even bigger because we're, we're replacing these vehicles and uh, driving different vehicles. And um, then at what point, uh, how, do they last as long as, as say, gas-powered vehicles? Or what is the, the kind of the lifespan of the electric vehicle? Uh, yeah, another great question. So the lifespan of the electric vehicle uh, should be on par with the lifespan of a combustion vehicle. Uh, there are fewer mechanical, fewer moving parts to uh, to be concerned about. Uh, now, that said, um, 
we have many uh, combustion vehicles today whose whose engines, for example, whose powertrains survive even after the car body has rusted away. So they are expected to last about the same time. The batteries, the most expensive part, uh, generally have warranties on the order of uh, eight years or so. And if the warranty is that long, then they should actually last considerably longer because uh, companies will generally put warranties where they think perhaps 1% or fewer of the of the items will fail. Uh, the even, even when you do need to replace the battery, if you do need to replace them in, in 8 to 10 years, say, uh, the likelihood is that battery cost will be cheaper, uh, will be less than the cost of the gasoline that you've saved from avoiding uh, combusting it. So... Um, a very good question again, and fortunately, the early data suggests very good reliability. All right. Do you see people, or do you see, or is the the idea here, or the goal uh, that we kind of follow in the footsteps of other countries that that have uh, um, embraced these vehicles, uh, Norway, other places like that? Yes, uh, that's certainly a goal. Um, and again, I'd uh, want to reemphasize that uh, we need to make sure we have vehicles that suit everyone. You know, what works in Norway doesn't necessarily work uh, in uh, you know pickup landia outside of uh, major cities. And so, um, but yes, it, the, the goal and the hope is that we can uh, transition to this. Of course, uh, we do need to make sure there are systems in place so that uh, you know, the, the provincial, uh, uh, provincial um, fuel tax or the equivalent gets paid, personal opinion, uh, and uh, transit tax and so forth. Uh, but yes, uh, that, is, uh, that is the hope. And um, we'd have uh, cleaner air and uh, fewer emissions and uh, hopefully you know, m- more pleasant commutes even. All right. We will leave it there. Matthew Klippenstein, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jill. Well, you likely heard in the news, Conrad Black was given a presidential pardon. There certainly has been a lot of reaction to that decision. And joining me now to speak a little bit more about this is Eric H. Sussman. He was the lead prosecutor in the case against Conrad Black. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Pleasure to be here, Jill. Uh, your first reaction, and I know you've written uh, about this uh, as as the prosecutor in this case. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard about the presidential pardon? I wasn't surprised um, because I, I knew they were uh, friends and business associates with a great uh, love of each other. Um, so I wasn't surprised. It was the process itself and how it came about just was uh, a sad commentary on the state of where the United States is in the justice system right now. And and how so? Because, I mean, on the face of this, it looks like a a president pardoning a a buddy. Uh, Is is that what what you're seeing here? Or or what what do you find sad about it? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a president pardoning a buddy and someone who's written favorable books and articles about him and someone who can obviously help him in his business when the president leaves office. But, you know, I mean, I think the thing that gets lost is Conrad Black had two other co-defendants in this case who essentially were doing his bidding to steal this money from Hollinger. And those guys got nothing. And in other words, no pardon treatment, no consideration. So it it just means that in the United States today, if there's one set of There's one justice, so to speak, for people who are rich and powerful and friends with Donald Trump. And then there's another justice for the rest of us. And, you know, coming from the U.S. and coming from the U.S. justice system, that's that's a sad state of affairs and and certainly not one that anyone in the United States should feel proud of or happy about. Uh, Do you think he should have then pardoned if he was going to go down the road of pardoning, which he did, that he should have pardoned all three? 
I mean, the, the answer is yes. I think what should have happened is the the way the pardons are ordinarily used by almost every other president for the last 150 years in the United States is a pardon application is put into the Department of Justice, it's evaluated, and then the president makes his or her decision. And, and that's not what happens with Donald Trump. It's certainly not what happened here. Pardons are sort of given away like candy or party favors by Donald Trump. And so, yeah, if you are going to if, if you make the decision, if Donald Trump makes the decision that he believes there was something wrong about the prosecution or he believes there is that they have served their time and they should be they should have their convictions lifted, then I don't understand why it would be appropriate to give it to Conrad Black, but not to his co-defendants who were ultimately convicted of lesser crimes because they didn't commit obstruction of justice. Right. And, and that's what I was just going to ask you to clarify that the convictions for the three, they were they were for the same crime, but different uh, different counts, weren't they? Or different. Yes. Essentially, all three were convicted of stealing about six point one million dollars from Hollinger International. Um, but Conrad Black, on top of that, was convicted of obstruction of justice. So actually, Conrad Black's convictions and his sentence were significantly higher than his co-defendants. And so you, you sit there and you say, how is it that one guy gets his conviction pardoned and the other two kind of continue to live with federal criminal convictions? Uh, some of his uh, supporters have come forward saying that uh, he should not have been convicted in the first place. Uh, we see these opinions uh, often surface uh, when talking about this. Uh, is it a reflection on you, on your work as the prosecutor, that he has now been pardoned? Uh, well, first off, I don't. In terms of the people who believe he shouldn't have been convicted, the reality is. Very few of those people saw all the evidence in the case. In fact, probably only a handful. And none of them were back in the jury room uh, and were able to kind of assess it. So the reality is 12 jurors believe that Conrad Black did these crimes beyond a reasonable doubt. The Seventh Circuit, the Court of Appeals believed it. And the Supreme Court, despite what Mr. Black says, said nothing about the merits of his appeal. It was a legal technicality that sent his case back. So that's the first thing. In terms of do I view it as some type of a personal, no, I I don't really, to be perfectly honest, Conrad Black was convicted. He served three and a half or four years in federal prison. He lives in Canada. He doesn't vote in the United States anyway. So the actual effect of his pardon is simply that he can go back to going to parties in the United States the way he used to. So I don't really, it doesn't impact me and I don't think about it one way or the other. I think the thing that impacts me is really seeing the reflection in how the justice system works as opposed to Conrad Black himself. And I would imagine, too, it, it kind of shines a, a not-too-attractive light on, on this, or, or does it send a bit of a message that if you're a rich friend of Donald Trump's and you break the law, don't really worry about it, because in the end, you'll be taken care of? Well, I mean, that's obviously the message it sends, and Mr. Trump is really unapologetic about it, and you can see that by how he is considered pardons of people who've been involved in misconduct in his own administration, in prior administrations, and and some of the pardons that he's considering giving this 
coming weekend of potential war criminals. So you, you just sit there and you wonder as a citizen of the United States, what, what is going on and why is this individual acting in essence like a strong-armed dictator and making these types of decisions and overruling very careful consideration given by either jurors or judges or other individuals. Uh, because there's really no mechanism, or is there, to, to stop him? If, if, a pre- if a sitting president decides that he or she wants to uh, give someone a pardon, is there any recourse? The answer is no. I mean, the recourse is ultimately with the voters. And that's why for most presidents, if you look at their controversial pardons, what you'll see is most presidents do those in their final days of office, like Bill Clinton with Mark Rich. They do them in their final days of office because the expectation is that the public will be so appalled by this that they would not get reelected or they could get impeached. But those are really the only ramifications. And for this president, neither, you know, he doesn't seem to care about the rules, um, very similar to Conrad Black in that way. And and in terms of the, uh, you know, it, it appeals to his base, political base, and he does not seem to be concerned one way or the other about being impeached. In fact, he seems to be goading the Congress to impeach him. So, There is, unfortunately, very little in terms of checks and balances other than the American public. And, you know, I understand Conrad Black is a prominent figure in uh, Canada, but in the United States, really, most people could care less about Conrad Black. Very, very true. Uh, We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But Eric Sussman, thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time today. All right. Thanks again. Take care. Well, the city of Vancouver is taking a look at possible legal action to recover some of the costs of the 420 celebrations that take place on Sunset Beach. And NPA councillor Melissa DiGenova was talking about this at council, brought forward this motion on Wednesday, and she joins us on the line now. Uh, Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. Uh, what What did you bring forward on Wednesday? I brought forward a motion that formally would ask our staff to look into the possibility of taking legal action against the organizers. Um, it also it also stated a few other things. I, I was thinking it would be important to have some information up on our website about 420 and other events that, uh, you know, uh, choose not to pay their permit fees. And I think that it, it's important that people understand that, you know, it, it's one thing to say, oh, well, you know, they're, they're just going to do that. But it's another thing when you look at the bottom line and money doesn't grow on trees. We have a budget at the city of Vancouver as the chair of finance. I can tell you that, you know, we spent uh, three to four hours just debating a motion brought by, forward by another councillor. We all wanted to provide $160,000 that was missed in the budget for breakfast programs in schools for, for kids who don't get breakfast in the morning, but it's hard to find that money. So when that happens, it's hard to justify. Uh, you know, this is no longer a protest. It's a festival where they're selling $25,000 broadcast opportunities with your company logo on a pillow. It's hard for me to justify the city of Vancouver paying their costs when there's kids going without breakfast in school. So I'd like to see, you know, the fact that that, uh, each year they've said it's a protest. This was the first year marijuana was legalized. Uh, It could have been a permitted event uh, had they gotten in line with the rules. That being said, they didn't want to do that. 
So I think that it's important that, you know, for for the number of people who work in the event industry, I've worked in event production before myself, uh, that, that the rules are followed because there are many people out there who are following the rules. And that means that they have to get permits. That means it's a higher uh, event fee and cost. And we look at that, uh, a good example would be the Skookum Festival. So that's one of the reasons. It's about fairness. It's about uh, making sure that we set a fair and equal and level playing field. Uh, plus, I, I think it's it's important to note that this uh, 420 event now makes a lot of revenue. And the organizers who can't seem to tell me if they did or didn't have insurance don't want to do that. I mean, they announced that on CKNW that they did have this insurance that they don't want to show people. Um, they also won't talk about their revenues, but I've added it up and it has to be in like the hundreds of thousands of dollars on top of all of the other revenue they make off the broadcast. Uh, it is an interesting point because uh, one of the organizers, Dana Larson, uh, has been asked that before and says he actually loses money on uh, the festival, which is uh, when if you're doing the math, it's difficult to, to see how that happens. But uh, he has said uh, that he loses money on this. Uh, he's also said that if uh, they they could get a permit, they would happily pay for it, but they can't get a permit to hold this in a park where they're smoking because that's against the rules. So how do you how do we fix that? Well, I mean, maybe he has to go somewhere and rent a private venue where they will allow him to smoke, where they will allow smoking. Maybe that's something Dana Larson and and uh, the 420 group should be looking into, private property where they can do that. Uh, if it's in the city of Vancouver, they'd still probably require a permit, depending on the space and how many people. But again, you know, this is he keeps changing his answers. So at first, he didn't have insurance, then he did, then he doesn't want to provide proof of it. You know, I think what it comes down to is it's a, it's about the dollars here, but it's also about safety. It's about it's about money. It's about fairness, and it's about safety. And you know, they say that, and he has said they would pay the permit fee and the costs associated, except for policing. He doesn't want to pay policing. But when I actually received a, a memo back from our staff and I posted a piece of it up on social media and highlighted it, it's not just policing he chose not to pay last year. We haven't added up the cost for this year. He chose not to pay for Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services, chose not to pay for sanitation. He only paid $63,000 uh, to the park board. So the entire bill last year was $210,000. So I think it's disingenuous of Dana Larson to say that he's willing to pay everything except the police. And the other argument I have is you look at Italian Day or a number of other festivals that only get $4,000 from the city. Italian Day is tied uh, for the second largest festival in the entire city. I think it comes just a little bit after Pride. So you have Celebration of Lights, you have Pride, you have Italian Day. Gets four thousand dollars from the city of Vancouver, and they have to uh, they have to raise all of the money to pay their policing fees, and they manage to do it. Could they get a big famous Hollywood band like Chris Hill? Would they even want to? I don't know. But the fact is, is that you know I understand that he was able to find a sponsor to pay over eighty thousand U.S. dollars, maybe up to a hundred thousand U.S. dollars, and that was just the band fee. That had nothing to do with production, everything else. So, you know, yes, he could pay all of the costs. Uh, he said even if he gets a permit, he won't. And I think that it's important that, you know, um, I, I, each year it, it seems that he, it, he, he feels more entitled to do this. And I, I've asked him several times, what makes you feel more entitled than events who are raising money and show us their financials and give all of their proceeds to BC Children's Hospital? 
What makes him feel so entitled? And then I look at the booth space he's selling on city land that he doesn't have a permit for. And it, it definitely, there's no way he could be at a loss. So why not do, why not crack down on it? There seemed to be the the uh, idea put forward this year that this was the first year since legalization they were going to get a pass, uh, but the idea was put out that it would be the last time they got a pass. I mean, we're already paying one hundred and sixty thousand dollars for policing. Why not have the police shut it down? Well, I think that first of all, uh, city city council, we can uh, make some budgetary decisions. Uh, but we don't tell the police what to do. You'd have to ask CPD, uh, what, you know, uh, what their their plans would be. I understand that uh, what they what they have come out and said publicly, uh, and what I've heard from our staff is they're trying to make the situation as safe as possible. That being said, maybe there needs to be a plan earlier on for next year. And I understand that our FES committee, which is comprised of, you know, VPD, Vancouver Fire and Rescue, our city staff, all the services who come together uh, to look at the larger and more complex uh, permitted events in the city, maybe that's something to consider for next year. I'm not going to tell the, the Vancouver Police Department how to do their jobs, uh, you know, but but Dana Wilson did say on CKNW that, you know, uh, it, and this was him saying this, this uh, to Mike Smith and to me, he said, you know, they shook my hand and said it was a great event. I said, they'd probably also, you know, ask you to pay your bill. They'd probably like that too. And he can. Uh, he's choosing not to. He also won't tell me where all of the money's going. I understand they've donated $4,200, I think, to three different organizations or charities of $16,000. That's less than he charges for a lot of broadcast opportunity. So I, I don't know where this money is going. It's, you know, I've received emails from people who actually are in the cannabis industry. I've received phone calls from people who say, you know what, I don't feel this is legitimate. I don't feel this is above board. If I was an event, you know, I would have to have to show you all of these these things that he's refusing to, to move forward with. So I think that it was, a, you know, it was a step in the right direction. And I feel that it was a big win that council affirmed the fact that we needed to look at this. And, you know, I think a few counselors were on the fence ultimately about the final vote and the final motion until I actually started, you know, to drill down into, you know, what we could be spending this money on instead. And I think that that's important, right? It also a number of reputable, reputable event production vendors won't work for Dana at Larson in the 420th because they don't have a permit and they have thousands of dollars of equipment. And I, I don't know. I, I've also heard from parents saying, I don't want my, my kid going down to an event where there's not safe, reputable vendors who don't have insurance, you know, uh, all right, Melissa- that with Radiohead. So uh, that, that's the reason that I put forward the motion. I was very happy to see it pass. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Melissa, thanks so much. Thanks, Jill. Well, we touched on this subject yesterday with Michael Campbell, and we talked about it last week on the program as well, uh, looking at the reports that were released into money laundering in this province. And one of the reports, led by Professor Maureen Maloney, uh, took a look at the amount of money laundered, and the estimate was that as much as $5.3 billion or possibly as little as $800 million of money laundering funds went into BC real estate in 2018. Uh, one of the other numbers that was put out in that report was a 5% increase in values of housing. That was the estimate of the average 
increase because of money laundering. But keep in mind, these numbers uh, were brought together by looking at different models and trying to make the best guess, really, when it comes to money laundering in this province, because it's not as though uh, there's been an investigation where people who were at the helm of money laundering simply said, yeah, yeah, I've been doing that. Yes, I purchased housing with this. No, that's not how we came up with the numbers. Uh, We are going to learn more when the inquiry goes forward. But right now, when we look at money laundering in real estate, what can we really uh, say concrete about uh, the cause and effects and what's happening? Well, my next guest is uh, here to talk a bit more about that. And Andre Pavlov is uh, joining us on the line now, finance uh, professor at the Beatty School of Business. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the numbers that we're seeing and the links that we're seeing made between real estate in BC and money laundering? Well, I, I believe the numbers overall, as um, you know, they tend to be um, about 2%, 2.5% of GDP, which is what uh, we would expect um, and, and seems to be the average across the world for all kinds of um, cities and countries. Uh, and in fact, that's uh, the first uh, um, estimate the report uh, brings up. It is uh, it is not a direct measure of, uh, of money laundering. It is just GDP times two two and a half percent number, which comes from an IMF estimate. Uh, there was an also an RCMP report uh, from a few years back that um, uh, pegged the uh, money laundering amounts in, in Canada at fifteen billion a year. So if we get half of that, you know, uh, maybe seven and a half. So the overall numbers look um, very reasonable to me. Where I'm concerned is that those numbers add up to about $4,000 per property in BC. Um, and I just can't see how this kind of amount can can have the market impact that we've seen over the past um, four or five years. Uh, basically, the real estate prices doubled, uh, and you know, four thousand per property per year isn't uh, isn't gonna be able to do that. Uh, so, I think there are other factors that play into our real estate market that are far more important than the impact of money laundering. Uh, and also, is it uh, that that we're not focusing completely either on what part of the real estate market uh, perhaps is being influenced by money laundering? In that, uh, it's multi million dollar homes and mansions and properties, isn't it? No, you're absolutely right about that. So it is entirely possible that certain market segments, uh, as you say, luxury real estate on the west side, maybe that was impacted quite a bit from money laundering. But when we look at uh, at uh, real estate across the board, and especially at real estate that is of interest to first-time home buyers and really of interest to the typical uh, British Columbian, you know, those segments um, were impacted even less. Uh, you know, then the then the amount per property is a lot less than four thousand uh, dollars each, and uh, that just can't possibly explain the price increases that we've seen in the past, uh, you know, five six years. So, how do we explain that? Oh, I think it's uh, pretty clear to me that um, that it's supply. So we have not we have been constantly and continuously for over a decade constricting supply. We do so through uh, regulation and zoning. We do so through um, very bureaucratic process at, uh, at uh, the municipal um, level. And uh, by doing so, uh, you know, you can strict supply of something that is really needed and desirable. Uh, the only response you're going to get is um, 
price increases. So, uh, yeah, sure, money laundering needs to be uh, eliminated for uh, all kinds of other reasons. It, it is wrong and it is illegal, but um, we cannot use real estate as justification for that. We, uh, If we want to address the affordability, really, we need to vastly, vastly increase our supply. And streamlining it in that, um, I mean, there have been studies done that look at uh, comparing the different municipalities and cities in Metro Vancouver. And if you're a builder or a developer, how long it takes you from the moment you apply for a permit till you actually start building. Um, do you think, are we paying enough attention to, to the amount of red tape and obstacles and cost there that ultimately is passed on to buyers and renters when things are actually built? Well, I'm paying enough attention to that, I think. Uh, I don't think we are as a society because this thing is easy to fix. You just hire a lot more planners. And, um, you know, don't tell me there's a shortage of uh, planners and architects out there. We can certainly hire more people, uh, not just at Vancouver City Hall, but across, uh, you know, other municipalities in the lower mainland and um, and streamline the approval process. I just don't see how... A simple approval for a single-family home can take a year or more. This kind of thing should be done automatically, perhaps not even uh, without even the involvement of City Hall. Uh, we, we should accredit architects and, and, and engineers to grant approvals without any discussion uh, with City Hall for simple, straightforward projects like that that comply with, with zoning requirements. And then the other point is to simplify the zoning and allow for densification. Uh, which which sounds uh, simple enough, uh, but but I get what you're saying. So the, the first one seems like a bit of a no-brainer. If the zoning is already in place and you're building something that is within the zoning, it shouldn't be complicated. It shouldn't should it? I mean, it shouldn't be that big of a, an issue to get a permit to build what's already allowed. Yes, it shouldn't be, but it is, and it's not that the city hall staff takes too long to review plans. And from what I gather, they actually uh, work as fast as they can. What takes forever is the wait, uh, because there is a huge lineup um, of projects. So uh, the wait can easily be eliminated by just having more people. And the cost of that is enormous because not only the owner is paying interest and, and you know all kinds of other uh, taxes and fees on the property while it's sitting empty, uh, but on top of that, you're creating uncertainty. So if, if I'm considering a project and, you know, uh, any project really, uh, I've got to allow now for additional 10, 15 percent, maybe more of profit uh, to, to compensate for the long wait and for the uncertainty about what's going to happen. And that there's no need to have that additional, you know, uh, cost imposed on, on our real estate in BC. Uh, what about, though, projects, I and mean, you mentioned um, higher density and more densification, but it seems like every time we start going down that road, uh, and I'm thinking about a project now uh, that's uh, been proposed for Broadway and Alma, uh, there are automatically people who will come out and are opposed to it, to whether they aesthetically don't like it, they think it doesn't fit in with the neighborhood. How do you, uh, how do you challenge that or get uh, people to kind of get on board with higher density? Well, I understand how people don't may not want change because that changes their lifestyle. Um, to, in my view, a lot of that can be addressed through proper uh, and clever design. Uh, so you, you, we can densify and also make sure that local communities don't change too, too, too much too fast. 
so proper design, clever design, innovative design could be uh, is one way to address that. And the other one is um, I have actually been advocating for compensating owners that lose something when there is densification nearby. So if you lose your view or if uh, you have increased traffic or if you, uh, you know, whatever else uh, that that uh, uh, impacts you negatively, well, that's fine. Get a break on your tax bill, right? So get your uh, taxes in half or at all for a decade to make sure that you are not, you're compensated for whatever that negative impact um, you know, the new project is imposing on you. Uh, and that will still be a lot, lot, lot cheaper than the multi-year delays that uh, that we see uh, and the costs they're causing. Uh, do you think then, how long would it take if we were to streamline the process and uh, to make it so it's not this lengthy uh, process with so much red tape to get housing built? How long would it take to get to a position where the supply is there and, and we don't see this huge increase in prices because of a lack of it? So you do have a point there. Even if we do everything right on the regulation side, building still takes time. We can't build overnight. So on a, on a big project, it's still a year or two to build, despite best efforts and even in the most reasonable regulatory environment. So uh, we're not going to increase our supply. We're not going to overcome the shortage that we've been causing for a decade. We're not going to overcome that overnight. So there's going to be a lot of two, three, five years before we catch up, even in the best of circumstances. Uh, and then during that time, it's not unreasonable to take some demand-side measures like, for example, the way we did the foreign buyer tax um, to, to mitigate the demand to while we build up supply. Uh, so that, that could be a way to manage the short term because many people don't want to wait five years before we are back into uh, a normal real estate market. Um, having said that, all these measures, in my view, um, should be viewed as temporary while we are lining up the new supply that uh, that we need so badly. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, Andre Pavlov, thank you so much, though, uh, for your time today. Of course. Thank you.